What's up, everybody? This is Emmett. Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Uh, quick announcement before we get going here. I have a new podcast, new newsletter that's come out on Substack called Nuclear Barbarians. The link is in the show notes. If you're interested in the energy politics side of what we talk about here in Exhaust, and if you've been nuke-pilled by our discussion, you'll want to check that out. So again, you can check that out in the show notes. It'll be available wherever podcasts are available. But if you want that and some of my writing directly, hit up the Substack. It's all free. So without further ado, I am here with regular film commentator and resident lefty Gen Xer, Josh Bregman. What's up, Bregman? Hey, Emmett, how's it going? Pretty good, man. We are here to talk about film again, which I'm really excited about because it's spooky season. My favorite season of film because I, the uh, like, my wife makes fun of me in terms of like the amount of horror movies I've watched, right? Except for like the really shit tier stuff, like as I'm scrolling th- through anything, trying to find something, I'm like seeing it, seeing it, seeing it twice, seeing it. But I wanted to talk about two of my favorites that I think both fit into that genre and particularly our innovations, I would claim, on the slasher genre that is especially popular at that time. This might be a controversial claim. But we're talking about today two films that come out in 1984, The Auspicious Year, The Terminator, and A Nightmare on Elm Street, probably two of the most like iconic franchises that emerge from the 80s in terms of, well, I guess The Terminator doesn't really stay antagonist because of how T2 works out, but that image of Arnold as uh, cyborg and of course, Freddy Krueger are like indelibly imprinted in my brain as cultural artifacts. Absolutely. And so before we started recording, Bregman was sort of like, I kind of want to hear about how, like why you thought these were a good pairing, you know, aside from their year of release and the slasher thing. One of the reasons that I like this as a pairing is because they seem to handle two ends of the spectrum of time. A Nightmare on Elm Street is very concerned with the past. It's very much of a Sins of the Father movie. And The Terminator is about the future. Now, I don't want to make too neat of a claim here and say that, oh, well, we can see in 84 this emerging sense of the, you know, dismal future and the collapse of our sense of the past, right? I think that's almost like a little bit too neatly lashy and for even me. But I did want to take a look at them as films that were engaged with visions backwards and visions forward, simply because I thought that that was an interesting tension. And like I said, they are very much both in the slasher modality, right? And they arrive in the era of, I think the satanic panic is happening at this time too. So that's going on. And it's a very fertile period for famous American serial killers. Both Gacy and Dahmer are in operation, I believe, at this time. They're not caught yet, I don't think, but they are moving about (laughs) in the 1980s. Yeah. And then they're coming off Zodiac. Right. Summer of Sam and all that. Yeah, I mean, which is lit earlier, but that's still like present. And then you also have the, the child molestation stuff and the like home invasion is more of a 90s thing, but I think there's definitely a strain of how urban violence is spilling into the suburbs mm-hmm. in Terminator. 
especially. And then there's, of course, the suburban calm affected by, you know, the, the nightmare underneath with Nightmare on Elm Street. So. Yeah, exactly. And the, I also like these films because they very much fit in line with my favorite Sam Shepard quote, which is that every scene is a chase scene. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and these movies that is like pretty much literal, especially yeah. in the Terminator. Yeah. Like, the thing about the Terminator is that it doesn't let up like almost for an instant. It is a suffocating movie to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, it captures the relentlessness far better than I think T2 of that thing. So anyway, that's why I wanted to bring these two up. I figure we will, let's just start with, with Nightmare and then we can move into Terminator. Nightmare is one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm going to be completely honest. Like I like I understand it's not a perfect movie or, or whatever. There are like all sorts of like weird plot problems and we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of it's like, it is visually ecstatic to me. Mm-hmm. The practical effects aren't just good, they're thoughtful. And mm-hmm. the way in which the dream realm that Freddy operates in is, I think, masterfully rendered. Because it's never like, whoa, this is crazy dreamland where all these random things happen. It's usually small choices, right? So if we take a look at the opening of the film, I love that it's just this young woman, this teen girl, like wandering down this like industrial hallway. Mm-hmm. Like that's never explained. You're just there. And there's this repeated image and sound of a lamb bleeding in the background that also blurs with Freddy's laugh that I think is just like so great. The image of innocence blending with this sort of like satanic plague-ridden burn-scarred Freddy Krueger character. Yeah, the the sacrifice. Exactly. Yeah, there's like it feels like obviously Christian imagery is like involved in the entire film, but there's also this like sins of the father, Isaac and Abraham feeling to what's happening here. You know, when the first character wakes up from that dream that she has where Freddie's chasing her, her parents, her mother says to her, stop dreaming that way. <laughs> that was so great. Like that's a command you could ever fulfill. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, so many great things on that. Like, well, continue with what you're saying about the practical or the effects or the. Yeah, the effects is that, and this is something we were texting about, right? Is mm-hmm. that they're, they make the everyday extraordinary, right? Mm-hmm. So there's that scene later on when Freddie makes his first kill in the film where he's also in the protagonist, Nancy, played by. Heather Langenkamp, one of the best casting jobs ever, as far as I'm concerned. She's like totally perfect for that role, where she is also in the dreamscape. And above her bed, you see like Hedy's, uh, Freddy's head like move through the wall, except mm-hmm. the wall is like this film over his head where you can see his, the bump of his nose and all that. It's obviously like latex, and it's so perfectly like folds back into a normal wall and she even puts a cross on it like when she wakes up like right where his head was but it's things like that it creates a type of menace where nothing is safe and that feeling of a lack of safety increases over time so the first invasion is within the dream the second is in with the home where the girl's murdered then it is within a police station and then it is within a scientific study realm 
before it returns mm-hmm. then again to the home, which sort of like reinforces the idea. Oh, and there's a whole dream sequence, which is one of my favorites in the film in the public school. There's no realm over which Freddy can't have dominion as long as you're asleep or even if you're awake. Right. So they're all demonstrations of his power and his power is derived from his ability to make the ordinary, extraordinary and extraordinarily dangerous to take away all of your assumptions. And that that is done through the practical effects in a way that I think is not overwrought, but very intentional and very clever throughout. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like that destabilization of just ordinary objects like the, the wall, what was the other one? The, uh, the stairs, the pancake batter stairs. Yeah. Where she's runs movies, up the stairs. Yeah. Runs up the stairs and steps through and then just sitting in your bed, getting sucked down and like, then the geyser blood and in the bathtub getting sucked under into that like infinitely deep pool. And yeah, just that at any time you can fall asleep. And then, but the reality that you're in is going to look and feel the same until it doesn't and you can't depend on it. And there's no, there's no anchor mm-hmm. and there's no real rules. Like part of the thing the character's going through, through the whole thing is kind of figuring out what are the rules of this world what is this entity and why does it, how does it have power? And it's, I mean, you know, you can, I guess like you could argue that it's, you know, there's flaws with how it's not consistent, Mm. but I would also think in dream logic, like there isn't a consistency there. It doesn't have to make sense, you know, like, so, you know, you can, I mean, if you're being sort of persnickety about it, you can ding him for having inconsistent. Well, Freddie did this in the scene, but he can't do that in that other scene. But that is the, the thing is the dream logic has no clear rules and there's no clear way to operate in it or get yourself out of it. Or So which is more terrifying, right? Like that's, you know. Right. There's also the the uneven nature of dreams themselves, but there are definitely dreams I've had where I'm like, what, what do you call it? When lucid, borderline lucid, and other dreams where I'm just like totally swallowed by the world of the dream. And there, I have no way to predict what type of dream I'm going to have. Right. Right. And, and the yeah, like especially that high school scene with dragging the bloody body bag through the halls. I think that, that that's a great scene, I think, because it's a clearly a dream. I think even the protagonist understands that it's a dream. Obviously, this isn't happening in high school, you know, mm-hmm. but you keep following it, you know, and that's kind of gets to that old, was that an old Eddie Murphy joke to going into white people going into the basement to, to check out the story? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, out of that nightmare, literally going into the basement. But it's also like in a dream, you would follow it and uh, almost... Like you don't even have volition in following it. Like you're you're spectating it, and that's where the spectacle's going, right? And mm-hmm. so you're just watching it, and you're, you know, the visual representation is that they're moving their body through space, but obviously, like the psychic phenomenon is they're just watching it like a movie, right? Right, and I think that's also part of what makes them terrifying. And what makes, whenever I've thought about it, Freddy Krueger such a successful villain. And honestly, I, I would watch these movies when I was a kid and I couldn't stop watching them because I love them. And they would give me 
horrible nightmares and I would not be able to sleep at night because, and I would still keep watching them, you know, but what I think I was fascinated by was this idea that you could fall into a dream realm where you understand you're going to be powerless. Obviously I couldn't put language to this when I was a kid or in my tweens when I really discovered these movies, but you would come to find that that powerlessness is actually a danger rather than a type of play. And it's not just because bad things can happen to you. I understood what nightmares were. Obviously, I had them. But that someone else would be there watching your dream. And in fact, you were the spectator and they were the actor. Right. And so this is like another expectation undermined, right? That it can't just be a dream, right? That's what's so amazing about the first kill of Nancy's friend is when her boyfriend is watching her body literally twirl around the ceiling, getting stabbed. Right. I mean, that's like a great camera trick, right? <laughs> like yeah. when you're watching it, cause like I had to think about it like this, like whenever I do these movies with you, uh, talk about them, I, I love it because I try to, imagine what it would have been like to sit in a theater and see something like this for the first time. Yeah. And so I'm imagining it opening with Freddie making his knives and his weird little breathing and laugh. And then this dream sequence. And then it's sort of like, Oh, all these kids are having the same dream. And then this is the first kill. And it is like fucking horrific. Like yeah. I've seen and a lot long. of movies from the end long. It is yeah, yeah. so dry. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, kill her already. Like, you know, <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, what is, what is, yeah. You're like Jesus. Yeah. I think, yeah, and also the way it hooks you in. I, yeah, that was an interesting thing from a writing perspective. Like, she appears to be the protagonist of the film once it opens up after that opening sequence, and then also another odd thing was how it appeared that that her boy, what turned out to be her boyfriend, was an antagonistic force to her, like. It wasn't clear they were boyfriend and girlfriend, right? On the first meeting, they get out of the car and they're walking down the street. Yeah, and he says that lewd thing, and she's just she's kind of like piss off, you know. Yeah, and then he gets like angry about it, you know. It's not like part of their normal banter, right? Yeah. Like so, like okay, this guy's. And I, it had been so long since I'd seen it. I haven't seen it since I was a teenager that um, I had forgotten a lot of those things. So it was interesting to watch that kind of unfold. But then, yeah, watching her murder and you're thinking, well, this is the protagonist. Like, where are we going to go from here? You know, that kind of destabilized the narrative a bit. And I was kind of wondering, you know, why doesn't it start with Nancy or why would it have robbed that first incident of its power to have started out with Nancy's perspective? Because they very quickly say before that incident that they're um, both having the same dreams, right? Mm -hmm. So clearly, like, they're sharing that, that psychic space. And I was like, yeah, what would happen if you rewrote it from Nancy's perspective and then had that murder? But then, of course, you wouldn't have been able to witness it, right? Which, right, Nancy which is important. And the other thing is, like, I think one of the reasons why it starts with this kill is because, like, I think that's part of what's going on with the lamb iconography, like, in a metatextual mm -hmm. sense. It's like she has to be sacrificed in order for the narrative to really begin, you know? <laughs> right. Because you have to believe that the stakes are real. And so you right. have to really get to know her first. Right. 
is I think like what it what it does for you because then it makes it clear like what's heroic and special about Nancy. Right, 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 right. Yeah, you know, because that's like one of the things that I love about her as a final girl character is she's never she's so self possessed. She's mm-hmm. like determined to figure it out. And she's not turned into like a sexual fetish object or anything like that. Right. Right. If, if anything, she's like a little bit plain. No offense to Helen Langenkamp by any means, you know. And I'm just like in comparison to other final girl type characters is what I mean. Right. And, you know, like that, I love that scene where she's on the bridge with Johnny Depp. This was his first film role, by the way. He was terrified the entire time. Could barely get through a take. Yeah. And Wes is Wes Craven, right? Yeah. And when they were, he was like reviewing the audition tapes, his teen daughter was watching with him and she was like, oh, daddy, he's wonderful. And he was like, he's <laughs> supposed to be a football player. Like I can't cast this guy. And she's like, but isn't he grand? And he was just like, okay, if this is my 14 year old daughter's reaction, like I have to cast him. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like done. But she's talking with, with Depp who plays her boyfriend and you know, he, she's talking about like how she's going to get Freddie and like all the stuff she's studying and the survival manuals or whatever. And he's just like, wow, like you're really into this. And she just smiles and says like, I'm into survival, man. And I thought that was like so telling that she had that sort of like bravado and also such a great sense of humor, (laughs) despite like all the horrific things that were happening to her. There's like this indomitable spirit to like figure it out. Like, I, this may sound corny, but there was a time where I actually rewatched the whole franchise earlier this year. And when she How many films are there? There's like five or six. I mean, canonically speaking, right? Right. Like there's a reboot that I think is like a Michael Bay movie. Right. And it sucks. And it's all CGI. So it's fucking terrible. Right. Because it's not people interacting with real shit, which is what makes. It's such a great franchise. Anyway, I'm not going to get on my fucking hobby horse about that. We'll save that for when we talk about the thing. But where was I going with this? When she jumps on Freddy and goes, I got you now. Like when I thought about that as a real moment, I was like, mm-hmm. I, I like shed a tear earlier this year. I was like, that's so fucking brave. Like if right. I were a high schooler and my friends had been murdered in a mysterious way, no one believed me. And I'm like, I'm like so determined that I'm jumping on this guy with fucking knives for fingers. And I'm like, I've got you now, bitch. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. I I also loved how that survival book scene. So her boyfriend is going for like Balinese, like ritual and mythology, you know, he's like, can we figure this out? And she's like, yeah, I'm like learning how to make pipe bombs and baby traps. (laughs) And it totally taps into, so the whole film has got this thing where like all the authorities are failing, right? So like mm-hmm. Freddy is created by, you know, he kills 20 children, which it, I was also like astonished by. I was like in this small, apparently smaller town. I was just like, there's no way the kids don't know about this already. Like how yeah. the fuck would you bury this? Yeah. Like in a single, in like less than a generation, this isn't like a known thing. And right, also yeah. like it even get to 20 kids, like in a town, like, you know, like, two children missing would be like the whole place would be in, like locked down you know what i mean yeah and, and they, you know everyone's on a milk carton you know what i mean like it's, <laughs> so like so that was like 
Hilarious well, Scott, that's the similar problem that Stephen King's It runs into, right? Where it's like, okay, you've got a small town in Maine, and it's like, oh, we have a high rate of like childhood disappearances, and it's sort of just like, no one would fucking live. <laughs> like, yeah, people would just move. No place yeah. that has like a town fair also has that problem. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, totally. <laughs> It's a, it's a lovely place to live and deeply, deeply dangerous for children. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we have this summer carnival. Yeah. People come from all over the county and they bring their the kids. Cotton candy is that good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, like he goes to trial, but I think the quote is like, someone didn't sign the warrant in the right place or something. So he gets off on like a technicality, which is like classic 70s, 80s stuff. Like, Oh, yeah, I love it. You know, like, I love it. Bureaucracy will just let anyone go, even on like, that's <laughs> the guy who's murdered 20 children. Because <laughs> <laughs> of a signature. Yeah. So, but anyway, but that, the, you know. Also, like, that's got to be one dogged appeals attorney. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the most dedicated member of the aclu is hanging out in this small town yeah totally so they they kill him they uh kill him in vigilante style as a result so bureaucratic and legal breakdown mm-hmm. right? the the law is not enforced as it as you would expect it to and then we have the scientist who they do the sleep sequence and he's immediately <laughs> like five minutes into that he's like completely out of his depth and like i've never seen these readings and like has nothing to say no no guidance no wisdom and then her parents and like school the teacher is a fool like there's no authority there's no institutional there's no no appeal right so nothing she can go to for help nobody believes her even her father who's a police officer detective whatever so she goes like full macgyver which is like classic 80s thing like all i could think about when she pulled that book out was like the a-team and macgyver and it's just i'm just gonna make shit like (laughs) i'm gonna go to the hardware store and there's also that scene in um the terminator so when they he goes to the store for supplies back with like making material yeah and she's like, what are we going to eat? <laughs> so, yeah. So there's like a really fascinating sort of uh, survivalist, uh, like hyper libertarian strain going on there, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, to bring Lash back into it, like this type of survivalism is exactly what he talks about in the introduction to his sequel to the culture of narcissism, uh, the minimal self, uh-huh. where there's no longer this expectation that society is something that can continue. And in fact, that it must be reduced down to this individual who has this apocalyptic sensibility and can only draw on the resources of their own ego Ooh. to get them through the moment. And that is the contraction of the self into a type of minimalism. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you kind of see that in both of those films for sure. And that's certainly a theme that runs throughout 80 cinema, you know, definitely. I mean, the A team is like the most expansive view of, the, you know, you actually have a team. <laughs> There's still like <laughs> going on. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that's, um, yeah, yeah. The, the war band is Lindy, you know, <laughs> one of them is the ring giver and like keeps yeah. them together. But 
yeah, there is that sensibility throughout all of it. And the other thing that's interesting to me about the film is how Craven manages to smuggle in the child molester elements to Freddy, which was the original idea and frankly makes way more sense than somebody who just like kills kids. Like when Mm -hmm. the fuck does that ever happen? Usually, frankly, usually they're violated first tragically enough. Right. So to just have like a child, the idea is so funny when she was like, he was a child murderer. I was just like, God, I can't remember the last time I fucking heard that phrase, except for a movie in like the eighties as like a character trope. Like that's not a thing. Or usually if, if somebody is a child murderer, it has like bureaucratic elements to it like what happened with all the bodies of indigenous kids they just discovered in canada or all the bodies of children in the catholic run orphanages in ireland right so it's never this like lone actor type but craven does everything he can to remind you of freddie's sexual menace the most iconic scene is of course when nancy is in the tub and his hand foregrounded in the camera with the mm-hmm. ni- knife glove comes up in between her legs. I was like, this scene is fucking great. Like, this That's, is so perfect. It's such a great shot. Yeah. I, I was so- just like, it doesn't, you know, or when she picks up the phone that she unplugged and he's like, I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. And then right. she looks down and the receiver is his mouth with a tongue coming out of it. I was like, this is so perfect because if he were just out there murdering it wouldn't make certain it wouldn't make sense like the only way it really works is is if there's that sexual menace and it's even in his moments of self-mutilation you know when he like lifts his shirt up in front of nancy and like cuts open the area around his nipple and it's filled with maggots like that has this weird like psychosexual element to it where it's just like ah yeah no totally totally yeah no that's yeah that's such a i'm sorry i don't have a a good follow on on with that one but yeah you can get that out (laughs) yeah no i mean well we can we can pivot then to like so one of the things you want to bring up is sort of like the no go ahead yeah the one thing i did this isn't following the sexual thing but i did want to bring up the uh, the the way it was shot i mean so it was shot for it was a 1.1 million dollar production budget which even at the time was not that much Mm -hmm. terminators Mm 6.4 and so they were shooting it you know they were making a virtue of necessity in a lot of ways with the way it was shot but when you're talking about the bridge scene which seems so incongruous to me because it's like you, you've got this low angle shot and you're seeing the water in the foreground, the bridges in the middle ground, and then you have this palm tree off to the left. Mm-hmm. And it looked like the Venice canals or something. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I was like, is this fucking Venice? Right. And But I'm like, that, we're supposed to be in Ohio. Like, what is going on? And, and then I started paying more attention to all of the establishing shots. So every house, her house, her boyfriend's house across the street, this school, they're all just these like bang on completely perpendicular frontal shots where the structure like pretty much fills the frame. It's like a very static and very plain way of like rendering an establishing shot. Like there's no camera moves that's establishing place and depth. And it's just like, okay, house, school, police station, you know, like it might as well be a title card instead of a right. <laughs> And but and then that that bridge scene. There's one or two street scenes where she's walking across the street, and there's angles that 
where she's cutting at an angle and the lines of the frame are going diagonally. And then a lot of the chase stuff is like pretty bang on, at least in that, like if you think about the opening shot of her walking into the the rectangular of light in the, yeah, the tunnel. The yeah. And it's all very rectilinear in that way. And, uh, but that really added, I thought it was just a really nice bit of cinematography because it really added to the surreality of the whole enterprise and the feeling that like, we're not really sure what world we're in at any given moment. And mm-hmm. that even the world that is supposed to be real quote unquote is very dreamlike and kind of mythic, you know, house, school, police station, like just these sort of iconographic locations. And the, the, the shot after the first nightmare scene when they're at, at in front of school has the little girls doing jump rope mm-hmm. singing the Freddy tune. And then it tracks over across the trees and then Johnny Depp pulls up in his car with all of the, our characters in it. And, and the, the girls are jumping rope in that sort of gauze light, you know, and then it becomes more crisp as the camera pulls over. And then we go back, the camera goes back there and we're back on the lawn of the school, except it's full of students. Mm-hmm. So even when they're not officially dreaming, they're in this kind of dreamlike world. And I guess I just really wanted to talk about, in light of that and looking at the movie in retrospect, the, the ending where, you know, you and I talked about like how how the essential thing with horror is that the protagonists are making a decision whether or not to face the adversary. In other words, like they don't have a particular goal other than survival, which is true in both of these films, and I think pretty broadly true across horror, no matter even outside the slasher subgenre. Right? Yeah, I'd say so. Like even if we take a look at so a more recent offering like Hereditary, <clears throat> uh-huh. the plot is really something that happens to the characters. And then they rise or fall based on their decisions, right? Sometimes they're faded. It's a pessimistic ending that's becoming tragically increasingly rare. And sometimes it is like a a resolution. And I think that's what makes horror such a foundationally like almost existentialist genre. Like it's do or don't, you know? Right. Right. And yeah. And that, I mean, it also kind of fits with the sort of hyper-individualism of her solutions, right? Like, it's really about what's going on in her head and her development. But as we proceed through the narrative, she's trying to figure out what, A, what's going on, and B, what to do about it, right? And what the rules are so that she can, can I bring, can I grab and bring him back? Can I kill him in the dream? If I burn myself in the dream, do I wake up? Like, all those little things. And so she find, and there's a two instances where she's wrestling with him or he's very close to capturing her in a chase. And she says, you're not real. I don't, you're not real, but it doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Right? It has like no effect on his behavior or his reality. And then in the end, when she figures out that she needs to actually actively turn her back on him and sort of let go of the notion of fighting him, or even capturing him. I thought that was really fascinating that the solution was this sort of letting go. Mm-hmm. And that part of the problem, the thing that was like causing psychic distress was this, in her, her mother says, you know, you, you've always faced things head on. That's how you are. You've always mm-hmm. been that. And her mother is the opposite. Contrast, who is in denial, like 
doesn't want to do anything herself until she does this like catastrophic thing that sets everything else. And then, so Nancy solves the problem. Freddie disappears. Mom comes back. Friends come back. And then you have the ending where they're trapped in the car again. And then mom gets sucked through the doorway. So I was just wondering what you thought about that. Because in light of like looking back on it, I was thinking about how even this the real world was a dream world. So we're all in... We think we're in Nancy's psychic space, but maybe we're in Freddie's psychic space the whole time. Or what really Craven's going for there, that there isn't even letting go isn't a solution. Or these horrors are just something we always live with. Like what's the, I don't want to say the message, but like what's sort of the. Yeah, what's this? In the contemporary scene, if they had ended a movie that way, that would have been like just taken as an obvious setup for a sequel, like franchise attempt. But I don't think this film was conceived that this way. You know, I don't think New Line had any expectations that yeah. they were about to do a franchise. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't. Uh, so from what I've read, there's a great. I haven't watched it in probably a decade, but I've definitely watched it. Based, I think it's like four or six hour documentary on the entire franchise. It's it's for fans. It's really good because it gets into everything and like gets into the performance of Freddie done by Robert England, who's frankly fucking fantastic as a villain like i mean he i think he was like a trained shakespearean actor or something so he brings so much more to that character than anyone has the right to expect i just Mm -hmm. want to give him his due really thoughtful guy like the thing where he does the weird like you know showcases his gloves next to his face he's like this is your god now like talking about his hand that was his like choice that weird little gesture and it's Uh so it just sticks in my mind as like this is someone who really understood how weird this character was gave it a real body and personality so anyway back to the contours or lack thereof of the dreamscape yeah i don't think it's obviously a cynical setup i think obvious i don't want to say obviously i too thought that it was interesting that she finally realizes she has to turn her back on freddie in that moment because anytime somebody says to freddie like i don't believe you're real in some ways it almost gives them more power because it shows that they're in denial of the thing that's happening to them they can't accept that the dream is now more real or as real than their waking life and so when they're saying you're not real they're really like pleading with the situation to be different right right whereas she has this more radical acceptance where it changes meaning by the end of the film and so the betrayal of that i thought was also interesting because like to me the fact that it happens right this is like a job problem right where it's like mm-hmm. joe's family job's family is like restored but not replaced because you couldn't replace like a family <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. nancy can't really get all of it back because like that's just not how that could ever work that doesn't really make sense that's why it's so surprising when you're seeing it play out in front of you where it's just like wait all these characters are back now like her mom who's died is with johnny depp's back like what's going on and i think to me like what was important about it is that it was like it happens in uh a car mm-hmm. right because everything else has been like a static location right but the fact that they're locked into a car which is a great scene of them like pleading to get out or whatever and the car starts without them or or whatever it's i mean the car is the american idea of freedom especially at the time right like less so now but like 
one also like a cherry red Cadillac Cadillac convertible (laughs) you know like awesome yeah yeah exactly like that is the like post-war American Americana idea of freedom and it's like that's taken away too so I think it's like to me radically pessimistic and I do think that it starts to bend in on itself in ways that are totally irreconcilable right where you can never answer the question of like were we in freddie's head all along or or what's happening here because in order to achieve like this level of almost like psychic cosmic pessimism it has to frustrate all of that forever you know Mm -hmm. it just so happened that that meant for like a really good franchise i mean i could imagine being at new line and they took all sorts of risks back in the day like they were an incredible production house being like, well, we'll see how this one fucking does. And then to have produced out of this film, which was about a fucking child molester, <laughs> like, you know, like one of the most successful franchises ever. I'll bet they're like, wow, thank God Wes fucking ended it in that weird way. Cause we can still make some hay out of this thing. Yeah, totally. Well, also that, that was a kind of, so Halloween predates it. 78. Halloween is 78. Yeah. Right. And Friday the 13th predates it as well. And Prom Night. And Prom Night. So, and all of those are indestructible killers, right? Like they never... Except for Prom Night, but all of them are sort of the teen slasher type of thing. Right. But the the killer, the protagonist survives, but the killer still remains Mm -hmm. at Mm -hmm. large. Yeah. So it's in that, that tradition, right? I think Halloween 2 has come out by the time... Halloween 2 comes out in 82, I think, four years later. Halloween mm-hmm. 3, which you and I talked about doing an episode about and then decided against, is like a total break. John Carpenter's original vision is that there would be many anthologistic entries into the idea of Halloween, and Michael Myers was but the first iteration of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Halloween 3 is his attempt, or his approved of attempt to deliver on that dream, which ultimately <laughs> totally fails in the box office uh-huh. for ob- obvious reasons. It doesn't even have Michael Myers. But yeah, so that's in the tradition. Like, you know, maybe Wes Craven is ending it that way to be like, you never know. Well, I just mean there's something about, I think, well, like, yeah, taking it outside of the sort of meta analysis, but just there's something about the idea of the slasher persona or the boogeyman that isn't defeatable, yeah. you know, or, or goes away. You're only really buying time mm-hmm. and all of those, that deep, dark monster is always there at some level, even when you're, you know, joyriding, like having the best time of your life. Like it's always looming in the horizon or something like that. I don't know. No, I but think there's something that genre that necessitates that the villain isn't defeated, right? Like, or that. Yeah. Well, they're usually a type of evil incarnate. And so what would it mean to have somebody that could do away with evil? Like that seems like too much, you know, right. like it's, it's hard. It's easier to believe that he's indestructible than it is that somebody has basically successfully destroyed evil. Right. 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 You know, and I think that's, that's for uh very like deep, like lizard brain intuitive reasons that people have an easier time there. I think that that's a perfect transition to the other movie, Terminator, which ends with an incipient storm on the horizon. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. So yeah, Terminator, which I I love more and more the more times I've seen it. Like I've seen Nightmare on Elm Street way more, but and the actually the first Terminator movie I saw when I was a kid, I remember seeing it. It was on Thanksgiving. It was just playing on TV on my uncle's big screen. He was like the only person I had ever knew that 
owned a big screen until like that shit became super common and flat screens were just around. But he had a big screen with surround sound and we were at his house for Thanksgiving and he put on or was on TV Terminator 2. You know, and every eight-year-old wants to be the fucking kid in that movie, you yeah. know, because it's just like, I have a badass robot friend. Also, I get to ride around on a dirt bike and steal shit. This looks fucking awesome. What's My up, Edward? For- <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. My mom's giving me guns, like we're blowing shit up. We're saving the world. Shout out to Edward Furlong. Hope you're doing okay, man. I think it's been a rough ride for you. But yeah, that movie has an equal pessimism that feels, frankly, I mean, not just because of the nature of the villain, but in its, I want to say like, this is going to sound woo-woo, but like psychic framework or whatever, feels more modern than the almost like primordial mythic element happening in Freddy Krueger to me. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that also has to do with its urban locale. So I love the, the opening shot. I love the opening music. I love that the shot of Arnold standing naked. I think is that the fucking Griffith Park Observatory? <laughs> like yeah. looking so over cool. LA. I was just like, yeah. man, Somehow the shot rules. <laughs> in the middle of the night. And then there's like three punks hanging out at a phone booth, which isn't there. Or whatever that structure was. I was like, where is that? And then, you know, yeah, he just <laughs> yeah, just to zaps down a Griffith Park, but hey, it's a super cool loca- LA location. Why not? Uh, well, in that shot of him looking down at LA, and you literally see it's like it gritted out. I mean, that's the first yeah. thing you notice when you land in LAX at night. You know, you right. you're just like, holy shit, this is huge. You know, yeah. and just like the power of that shot really spoke to me. I guess now because I've lived here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this graphic part, like, that's very iconic. But also, like, the fact that this thing is about to descend upon this city, you Mm -hmm. know, like, that he is standing observing the human civilization that creates, ultimately creates him so that he can destroy it. Right, right. Really Yeah, the whole whole first 20 minutes of it is so good. Like, I mean, every, all the little choices... I was just marveling at just like the littlest things, you know, like he comes in, Arnold comes in first and, you know, in 1984, you're not sort of marinated for life in the mythology. So like, you really don't know what's going on, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there's the and, and they don't type- show you Arnold coming in. Right. They show you the garbage guy's reaction to him coming in, which I thought right. was great. Right. Yeah. Which also is like, great emotional cueing where you can't get the effect just the way you want it. So like working around an an imaginative limitation or a a limitation of the technology. And in the second one, they actually show the globe, right? Like he's like in this electrical globe. Um, Yeah. It's, it's way more ornate and the globe cuts through something, you know, it's like gives you a little cross section of a, I think a, a semi truck trailer. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. So then Michael Bean comes in and like, you know, Arnold just stands up and start, looks around, looks down, starts walking and he's massive, you know, and then Michael Bean comes in, who's not massive and is like coughing and sputtering. When he gets dropped from 10 feet up, so he lands on his shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, he's clearly a different kind of being, 
you know, mm-hmm. like whatever they are, they're, they look human, but they're not the same thing. You can, and there's just all these little visual cues and, and sound cues, and it's just great visual storytelling. Not a line of dialogue. Uh, there's that opening title card that doesn't really necessarily clue you into who these guys are or what they're doing there or how they got there, any of that, right? Like, you're just like, what, what is happening? And then just little things like the first chase scene, then we follow Reese around and, you know, he steals a homeless guy's pants and then he runs into the department store and grabs an overcoat. So now he looks like an archetypal 80s street character, right? <laughs> but but also like just little things like when they're chasing him in the department store and he gets down on his hands and knees and he starts like fast bear crawling through the... Through the he looks like a rat. Yeah. I was like, this dude's a rodent. Like, the clue is like, this guy knows what he's doing. Like he's, just, yeah. he's some kind of skilled person, right? Yeah. Like you don't do that if you're... You know, like you don't know he's a soldier yet. But if like, that's your first rodeo, that is not how you're handling that situation. Right, right, exactly. And so it was like it just little bits of character development like that. And he's so good also throughout the movie at stacking those things. So, and you know, you get, which is just good screenwriting, but you, it's very rare to see, you know, you get character development plus plot development plus like some information about the world in one single event right like like the first time that arnold uses the cop's voice over the radio Mm -hmm. and then you learn okay he that's a power that he has but you also learn like where he's going and like what his goal is in that scene right like so there's multiple like things being conveyed with each so just i was just so impressed with the economy of it and then how like cameron just like it, it evades like all the but I want to say, you know, the cliche is that sci- science fiction is hard to do because you, at some point, invariably you have an info dump, mm-hmm. which is dramatically boring. So we get the info. The first info dump we get is Lance Henriksen to his boss, Paul, what's the actor's name? I forget his name. I can't remember. He's great as the police chief. Yeah. I love it when he's just like, give me a cigarette. <laughs> Lance Henry just hands yeah. him a cigarette and he goes to grab it in his hand and he has a cigarette lit right. in it. I was like, this is great. Man. But he's like, we've got two victims, both with the same name uh, in blah, blah, blah. And he like whips out his glasses or points to them and says like, I can read, you know, mm-hmm. like I've got this dossier in front of me. Like you don't need to be te- walking and talking, telling me this, but you are because you're an idiot and I'm mm-hmm. smarter than you. And then you just know their dynamic. Like yeah. in that one instant. While it, while it gives you and you also realize that it doesn't bother Lance Henriksen. Right. Like right. he's totally unfazed by this. He's just right. like, whatever, man. Like I'm just doing my fucking job over here. Yeah. Like, that's, their normal, that's their normal back and forth. But then you, the audience, get the info dump and then later in the scene with the psychologist, you get like a deeper info dump that's drawn out of Reese by the psychologist and also is Cameron like plugging all the holes, right? He's like anticipating geekdom, like being like, well, what about this? And what if you're, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like he's right. got and that's only stuff. used to undermine the character of Reese himself. Right. Yeah. Rather than like, it, it does a great job because it heightens the stakes of how insane this actually is. Right. Like, 
while showing how ill-equipped and unsafe they are in that police department because right. like of course no one believes them right you're like okay right. well they're just totally fucked because <laughs> i've seen this guy and he's fucking real <laughs> reese is not crazy right no totally and they're just laughing into their cuffs about it and uh, yeah and then uh, like again just that one scene doing so much work and you just don't see that stuff anymore you just like it's it's so rare if you you know i think Coron has that quote if you can close your eyes and understand the movie you're not watching the movie you cannot do that with terminator like you wouldn't have any idea what's going on it's just really great visual storytelling and then that last bit where they're under the bridge or the sewer or whatever that is. It's an overpass, I think. Overpass, yeah. And they're getting, they're info dumping, but they're also like getting closer as, you know, she's like, tell me about this. Tell me about that. What about your life? You know? mm-hmm. and it you makes get- sense that it's because it's not really an info dump. Like that's a secondary purpose. It's really about these characters getting to know each other because so far you have this, the first breather you get. Right. You know, right. like, because the whole film, it's like fucking oppressive. Like, the yeah. threat of the Terminator, like, right? So, the, there two, the, the threat of the Terminator in the first one is its relentlessness. Mm-hmm. That's true in T2, but that relentlessness has this different quality because of the Terminator's liquid nature. It has this beguiling element to it, you know, which mm-hmm. makes you unsure of what exactly you're facing. Whereas Terminator 2, it is like there in your face the entire time. Like there's no like 20 minute, like let's heal a main character scene for the most part. It is just like, he's just killing people like relentlessly going through the phone book, looking up the different Sarah Connors and efficiently, brutally murdering them. No questions asked. Mm -hmm. Except for, are you Sarah Connor? And sometimes not even that. Just killing whoever answers the door, <laughs> or whoever's inside, you know? right. right? And that, yeah, and and then the the nightclub scene, just killing whoever's in the way, like doesn't care about you know what kind of a scene he's causing or what kind of forces he's bringing down upon himself by being so brash about it you know which is just also great because that's you know what a robot would do like it's just really good characterization i read an, a thing before we had this conversation where cameron was like well he's supposed to be an infiltration unit and of course arnold is such a conspicuous person yeah because he's like, fucking juiced up and thick as fuck man yeah. <laughs> he's so beefy in this one yeah, but the audience buys it. And it's also like, yeah, but like nobody cares but you that it's an infiltration unit, you know? <laughs> like, like you can see that, like how Cameron, his conception of it, like the thing started to take a life of its own. He was smart enough to just roll with it. And be like, yeah, but, I mean, it doesn't make sense according to the way I've conceived the world, but also it's completely mesmerizing to watch. And you just want to, like, you can't take your eyes off Arnold doing all this stuff, so. No, yeah. when he puts on the, like, sunglasses and enters the police station. I mean, that shootout is, so here's what's interesting to do. Compare that shootout to the wonderful, wonderful shootout, similar scenario of the police station in the unsung and half-forgotten horror th- 
uh, franchise, The Cop. And Ooh. it like it's cool to contrast those things because they're both like fucking wild. And obviously it's clear that like Cameron is the better filmmaker, but I would just say like there are many like police station shootouts that are iconic. I think those two are the best that come out of the eighties by a mile. There's okay. it's just, yeah. yeah. And the cop is also just like one of the most like insane, fun murderous slasher things that I wish more people would talk about. I, it really hasn't gotten its due. And the, the whole franchise is fun for the most part. So anyway, yeah, like that scene is so cool, right? Like it's the it fact that the Terminator is always wearing this like punk gear too. is right. really interesting, right? Because that's where he gets his first clothes and then he looks like a biker. <laughs> and like there is this like outlaw aesthetic that they give him that I thought was a really interesting choice. Like it didn't have to be that way, but somehow that like adds to like the fact that Arnold looks like juiced up Corey Hart is so cool. You know, sunglasses at night. (laughs) Right. Well, that's the thing. They're both, when they start out, they're both the the iconic 80s boogeyman, right? Like the the punk kid who is like really scrawny and more Bill Paxton-ish in that scene. But like in your um, suburban imagination, he's like big like Arnold and can actually mess you up, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's your projection of like the punk demon. And then like, you know, Michael Bean's like homeless guy, right? He looks like a homeless uh, flasher, right? right With right. the trench coat homeless. on and no shirt underneath, you know? Hides the gun under the coat, like yeah. that he reveals later. Yeah. So yeah, he's like, yeah, the flasher. And then the home invasion thing, which is like legit horrifying. Like you just answer your door and just someone just wordlessly blows you away. Um, well, that's like, that's like Capote's in cold blood type shit. Right, right, just right. like how the fuck could that happen? Right, right, and like yeah, you're, no matter how safe you think you are, you live in a good neighborhood or whatever. So well, could just well, and that's what's genius about the fucking phone book thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Because it's just like that. It isn't random, but of course it would feel random and be totally senseless. Right, 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 right. right. To like an outside observer, like that's what's so interesting about both Freddy and the Terminator is like the senselessness for the establishment in terms of like understanding what's happening there, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like it has its own logic that people either can't or refuse to face, you know? Right. Yeah. I think as it goes on and you find out what in both of them, what they're from, it's the refusal to face. They're all things we've created, right? They're, Mm They're things that we've, creative that are coming back for us but yeah just just so many great great choices like that and what was it oh there's just a random little thing i noticed that isn't thematically relevant but the, the truck thing you know cameron is a truck driver at one point the terminator's car runs over the toy truck oh yeah yeah, yeah. truck in the beginning and then you know at the end he's driving the gasoline truck just like fun stuff and that stuff keeps popping up in the other ones just little like you know visual you know I don't know what you'd call them, not like Easter eggs, but like just his little homage to his past, his days as a truck driver. Yeah, I, I mean, love the like little bits of 80s characterization that you kind of don't really see anymore. Like I asked you when we were texting how, if you knew how much he had planned this out because 
like she goes into her apartment with her friend and then she's playing with her like pet iguana and she gets turned down for a date by a guy with a Porsche. Right? Mm-hmm. That's all you know is it? a guy with a Porsche, they had a date set up and it's like Friday night or whatever, Saturday night, party night. And he bails on her at the last minute. So he treats her poorly and she's like, you know, a beautiful woman. And, but it's also like, you know, the whole time she presents like in the beginning kind of blandly as a sort of nondescript waitress, which is very beautiful. But other than that, she's just going to her waiting job and getting trashed by the customers and suffering it. And, and then this bit with the iguana, and I thought that was so surreal, but it was like, yeah, she's a little weird. Like she's a little off. And yeah, most people would have a cat or a dog, you know, she's, she's, she's a good lizard. Yeah. yeah. She's treating a lizard like a cat. So like the, just that little thing, it's so great because it's like, it's fun to watch and it's weird and quirky, but it's also like sets her up for like when she has to dig deep and turn into Sarah Connor, the legend, like there's a bit of that in there. Like she's going to like, you know, she surrounds herself with like something scary and cold blooded and like harsh, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I also love how they reveal who she is, right? I think they even reveal who she is after his first kill, right? Because he goes out and kills his first, and he goes to the door. This is after he look, or the Terminator looks at the phone book, right? right? And then he goes to the door of that house. He's like, Sarah Connor. And she's like, yes. And he's just like, blah. Yeah. <laughs> and then it cuts to her showing up late for work, and you find out her name is Sarah Connor when she punches her time card. Right, right. Which right, I right. thought was just like so great. As yeah. like break, like tying it all together in just like one shot, you yep. know, and tells you everything you need to know about her. She's late. Also, she's just a working class like girl, like uh-huh. you know. I mean, she her character is from Texas. Her mom's from Big Bend. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like you find that out too, you know. Uh-huh. Like yeah. there. One of the things that I get, even at the police station and with the brief scene we get of her that has totally fallen out of movies for me is like a real look at working life. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, one of my favorite, favorite moments is when she's getting trashed by all of these customers. And it's the great, because of course, like once you learn what happens next, it's amazing. Her coworker leans over and says, look at it, look on the bright side. No one will care about any of this in a hundred years. Right, right, right. You know, which is totally something if you've worked like a shitty service job, you've definitely said something like that to a coworker on a rough day. But it's also like, yeah. oh, yeah, it's all going to be blown up and disappear. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, no, no, yeah, there's so many. I mean, it's so great. And then again, the same thing where the police can't help you, like they're, they're powerless. They don't um, understand you know, what's going on. They think it's a joke or like it doesn't map on to any of their priorities or how they're going to run things. And just the other thing is like, I mean, you really do get the sense of like diminishing expectations in the film. Mm-hmm. It's like LA looks like shit. LA, by the way, it looks worse now than it does in this movie, which is really yeah. saying something. Cause it looks like downtown looks like fucking bad <laughs> Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> like it looks so grimy. I can tell you it's worse now. Sad to say. I was just like, oh wow, you could actually just like walk down the street at night. <laughs> like that must be nice. I've through the alley without <laughs> yeah, yeah, without who knows what the fuck happening to you. But yeah, you know, 
there is this sense of expectations betrayed, I think, in both films, right? Like, so the thing that happens is, of course, mm-hmm. like there is Cyberdyne system, Skynet takes over and declares nuclear war on human beings. You know, the, our ultimate Promethean might turned against us, right? Mm-hmm. And in the same way, the sort of like extrajudicial decision made by this community of parents in the suburbs to keep their realm safe comes back to bite them in the ass too. And it feels like there's no way out when watching this. Like watching these movies side by side, I could really imagine being trapped. To bring it back to like the reason why I poked fun or undermined the simple lashing thing at the front is because it's not meaningful unless you actually talk through both films. Right. It's so surface until you put them side by side and you start to feel like viscerally a certain claustrophobia in both films. It's like, Jesus, am I ever going to get shut of this decision I made earlier? And then the end of it is like, is there anything that's going to happen after tomorrow? Right. Right. You know, that's worth sticking around for. Yeah. No, that's a great moment she has when they're under the overpass and she's like, I don't want this not what I want. I don't want, you know, she, that's the moment where she decides to face it. Yeah. But she kind of almost has like a temper change from a little bit. Yeah. I Cause know. who wouldn't, you know, right. where it's like the, the only other, yeah. Very rare to have that in the film, by the way, like so, one of the things that I think is really important is that like Sarah Connor has to learn to become competent. Right. But first she has to make this existential decision. The way they eventually escape the Terminator is very, very clumsy and frightening and tense because she doesn't know what the fuck she's doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think especially after the engagements in the Middle East and when like Navy SEAL culture becomes this like fucking dominant thing in our society, the fetish of hyper competence, especially when it comes to violence has totally robbed a sense of danger from these films at the same time that things like marvel has shown up and have made violence like the most low stakes shit in the fucking world it's basically cgi acrobatics you know one of the things that's interesting is like obviously reese is the more capable one as he's revealed to us but on top of that like when she's crawling away from the torso of the Terminator that's coming after her, which that scene still freaks me out. Like my heart was racing because Mm -hmm. the visual storytelling is so good. You see its hand almost grab her foot while she's under this huge press several times and she can barely hit the button to get it, you know, Mm -hmm. destroyed by the thing, by the big hydraulic pressing machine or whatever. Like, that element so disappears from whatever's going on now because it's like either actually they were always amazing all along and that's like the narcissistic hero identification like main character syndrome that it asks for of the audience right or it's like i don't know the latest punisher series that comes out on netflix where it's like actually you're a navy seal taking the law into your own hands and like somehow getting hit in the face 80 million times without consequences while killing 20 guys by yourself in a bar through being tactical right yeah no it's yeah it's totally draining and all, the best 80s characters have all of that like if you think about john mcclain or indiana jones or mm-hmm. Like uh, Jones is hyper competent, but he's also got fears and weaknesses and makes bad judgment calls in the first scene, you know, and you see that very quickly. 
he's not flawless. He's not like waltzing through reality. Like he's like in the matrix and has complete neo like control over it. And they're fascinating characters to watch. And that's a very enjoyable <laughs> storytelling thing. And that's, I mean, that's kind of the classic hero's journey stuff is the, the call to action that's refused and then taken up and then realizing you have a destiny. But even with Luke Skywalker, you know, he's got to, he's got to train. He's got to become the thing he's destined to be like by working at it. It doesn't just, mm-hmm. like, he doesn't just make the decision to go. And then all of a sudden is, you know, this hyper-competent person. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know. It'd be interesting to go back and kind of see when that really fell out of favor or stopped being, theme i mean you know and also i think that's what makes it a draw for you know sarah connor's a waitress nancy's just a sort of ordinary high school student that we don't know anything else about her except that she goes to this high she's just a high school student you know just got a completely ordinary and life she gets her survival book from the library and you have no expectation that any of her shit is going to work right right like yeah, you yeah. like you're like this girl's on zero sleep like right. she's barely putting it together. This is her last dish. To, like the stakes feel fucking real. Yeah. Yeah. And all that, you know, is she's a bit, she's more determined than the people around her, a little more focused, more persistent, more dogged, you know? Yeah. She but, has but not, she, like a superhuman level, you know? Not, n- no, no. I mean, that's what makes it inspiring. Right. Yeah. Like that's, that's why I love the Nancy character. I think it's one of my favorite protagonists in all of horror, like more so than Sarah Connor. I mean, believe me though, like the scene that still moves me in T2 is when it's a mother like cocking a shotgun with one arm to defend her kid. Like it is hard not to be like, that is the baddest shit I've ever seen. You know, like that's really cool too. But you understand that Sarah Connor had to go through all of the shit to become that person. Right. It like destroys her life to be the person that would do that. Right. right. You know, it is not as if she's just like a mother who happens to, because Hollywood wants you to believe it happens upon after a montage, the ability to tap into that reservoir of determination and ability. And also, yeah, I think the destroys her life thing is very key. Like it's a burden. It's, it's a, it's not pleasant. It's not something you would want like or choose voluntarily if you had an actual choice they don't really have choices but like and they're and they're carrying that as a weight there's a sense of the tragic there you know like even at the end of the first terminator but in the second one you know she sacrifices so much there's a whole tirade about all the people she's gone through and all the things she's done to figure out how to train him and how to learn military tactics and techniques and strategies you know she's had all these lovers and been in all these guerrilla armies whatever i don't you remember like that? when you line it up with the timeline you're just like was fucking sarah connor in the contras <laughs> like, yeah. i was like wait I, what <laughs> well she clearly like goes to mexico and is right like yeah she she's in south and central america you know right right and and that's also just such a great little bit the kid tries to run the little hustle on her and and also that's like there's a little darkness to in that touch too he's like pay me for the photo or my father will beat me. And I was kind of like, wow, that's kind of strikingly dark for an eighties movie, you know, or just um, like any, any, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's strikingly dark for 
an Maybe. 80s movie. I think that we think it's strikingly dark for what feels like a big budget action movie. Now, right. where you're do, you don't really hint at things like that anymore. Just like you don't really hint at the way in which it's obvious Lance Hendrickson's character and the cop and the police chief are obviously totally overworked and completely embittered by their jobs. And that it also that it's just a fucking job. Right, right. I hate the weird yeah. ones. Yeah. Yeah, I hate the weird ones. Yeah. Or when he's just like, you know, he tries to look nice for the photo thing. He's basically like, you look like shit. And Bob's just like, your mother walks out. Yeah. No, you know, that's a great reaction. And even when they die, he doesn't linger on it, but it, you still kind of feel it. It's like, oh shit, this is that kind of movie. Like, those guys, like the Paul Winfield, dude, they're guys, just totally expendable. Like, yeah, yeah, and you think that because Paul Winfield's got this kind of fatherly solicitousness and you know warmth to him, like underneath this sort of gruff surface, like you do. The setup is that you expect him to become a player in the thing. Like maybe they all run away together, and he becomes part of the team or that once they show up they'll realize what's going on and they'll help and they're just like totally yeah. overwhelmed and they get fucking murdered <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, just yeah, in yeah. cold blood in the hallway one after the other didn't matter yeah. that they got out the like assault rifles to do it yeah 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 and that yeah the guy that yeah you might have well the little hope that would give him a little maybe help them get over the line maybe might not make it the whole movie but he like dies in the middle mm-hmm. and you're like oh Damn. Okay. And then the death feels more like a choice, mm-hmm. right? That there you get to have like a moment of glory, maybe with this character of self-sacrifice or something like that. And instead, he's just like mowed down like anybody else. Yeah. He could have been one of the nightclub victims. Doesn't right. matter. And that only adds to the terror of the Terminator. Right. Right. And yeah. the same way that he, not even the like square jawed, like the granite jawed, like masculinity of fucking john saxon can <laughs> save nancy from whatever freddy krueger is doing right right like that's really i think really really important there is that like i mean john what wasn't john saxon in being some sort of badass character and instead he's this sheriff who can like honestly fucking barely show up for his daughter in her hour of need right yeah well that that was an interesting like she didn't she's like come here at 20 after or in 20 minutes and he doesn't doesn't, even bother yeah (laughs) she's across the street from where her boyfriend got murdered and he's not like i'm gonna take a few to go see how my daughter is doing after she asked me to visit in 20 minutes right just to humor her even or just to humor her yeah, yeah. After she called, knowing what had happened somehow. Also, not going to look into that, right? right. Like you. So, what's interesting there in, in in Nightmare on Elm Street is that there is like this also total like abnegation of authority, where there mm-hmm. is, is like an incapacity of authority in Terminator, right? And both of those things are scary for different reasons because one of them is like the thing you expect to be able to have the capacity to defend you at all costs might be these heavily armed cops within this police station right Mm -hmm. and that doesn't work right the monopoly on violence of the state cannot even protect you from whatever this is it's so above and beyond like that's how fucked you are what's dark yeah you can't even protect yourself and what's dark and sad about what happens in a nightmare on elm street it's that the both the family unit 
and the mechanisms of law and order are just like so totally feckless and destroyed by their own problems, like in their own concerns that they're not even paying attention. Right. Right. To something that happened because they did it. Right. (laughs) Right. You know, like, yeah, you would think once the reveal happens and she figures out that they're culpable, like there would be some more sense of duty. And instead, or, yeah, yeah, instead her mom's drunk and is like, basically says in a more refined way, don't dream like that by being like, that's impossible because we killed him. By the way, I have the totem of his crimes in our basement. Here's yeah. his glove. And the dad's just like, knock it off. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, there's no crying in baseball, basically. Yeah. Oh, I'm just going to turn this suburban home into a jail. Right, right, exactly. So I think if we're going to like end it in a place that's on theme, I think both the abnegation and incapacity of these organs of realms of authority to handle what feel like increasingly catastrophic problems that are consequences of our own actions is a pretty good place to end it in terms of the exhaust theme of why nothing feels possible. So Guys, we hope you enjoyed this. It was certainly fun to talk about these movies. By the way, feel free to suggest stuff. We'd love to cover more things, especially more movies. It's fun. If there are documentaries or whatever that you think are on brand, reach out. So I think you should weigh in. I think the listeners should weigh in on whether uh, we should actually do a season, Halloween 3 season of The Witch or not. <laughs> yeah, if you guys want us to do a Halloween 3 season of The Witch, maybe as like a bonus thing for the Patreon for Halloween. That's kind of, by the way, for the Halloween episode, we do still plan to do H.P. Lovecraft's story, The Color from Out of Space, and the Nicolas Cage vehicle that just came out within the last few years about that. So you have that to look forward to at the end of the month. Josh, thanks for being here, and thank you guys for listening. Stay safe out there.
Chapeau.